Welcome back to episode 10 of the Pulsog podcast. I'm Jerome Devitt. This week's episode, recorded in October of 2020, is on the theme of children's rights, which is a subset of our study of human rights in general, a huge component of the Pulsog course. It's important that you see this episode not as a standalone piece, but rather as a part of a much broader suite of resources that form a full module in and of itself, aimed at leading you to gaining a higher level of mastery that will set you up really well for the exams ahead. As always, the full range of additional resources can be found on the website www.pulsocpodcast.com. These resources include case study materials around the Children's Rights Referendum in 2012, materials from the Ombudsman for Children's Office, the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, the UNCRC, and finish with a screencast that I produced earlier this year, whose specific goal is to walk you through the necessary data gathering and outline structure that might apply to one of our essay titles on children's rights in the exam. To walk us through this episode, I was joined firstly by Dr. Niall Mundoon, the current Ombudsman for Children, and the Minister for Children and Youth Affairs, TD Roderick O'Gorman, with the overall goal of trying to place the topic of children's rights in a broader political framework. We also have a very special treat in our student strike back section a little later on. I'm really grateful to all of our participants for taking the time to join me via Zoom and hope that any slight internet-related sound blips that may arise don't impinge too much on your engagement with this episode. If you haven't already done so, make sure you've downloaded the Listen Along Guide from the website to make sure that you get the most out of this jam-packed episode. We've got lots to cover. Let's dive in. I started off by asking the Ombudsman to explain a little bit about the background and role of the Office of the Children's Ombudsman. Our office is set up um, as an alternative, a free alternative, an independent uh, option for people instead of having to go to court. So we were set up in 2002, um, and before that, if parents or children had an issue with any public service that they were engaged in, whether it was a school, a hospital, local authority, justice, the only way they could get uh, it rectified was to sue the state. Um, so as an Amazon for Children, we can take complaints now and people don't have to, there's no charge to it. We're fair and impartial. And we take approximately 15 to 1600 complaints a year from parents and children all around the country. We also have a, a statutory obligation to promote the rights of children across the country. So we promote the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child and try and raise awareness of it throughout the country for adults and children. And the third part to our, our obligation is to um, promote uh, child appropriate legislation and policies across the government. So we will we will take uh, bills at an early stage from the government. The government will refer them to us and say, "Is this how do you see the children being uh, affected by this uh, legislation or this policy?" And we try to uh, prevent problems. We try and take the lessons we've learned from complaints and say, "Right." You need to adjust that so that it do, these sort of issues don't come up again in the future. And we try and predict where the, the concerns will be and we'll make submissions on an ongoing basis to either the, the department or to the Iraqis committee that might be looking at it. So those are the three main areas and they work well together from our point of view. Of course, the Republic of Ireland shares the island with another jurisdiction. So I wanted to find out what kind of relationship exists between our Ombudsman for Children's Office and its counterpart in Northern Ireland, their Commissioner for Children and Young People. We have a strong commission, a strong relationship, a strong uh, both personally and professionally. Um, 
2017, we worked together on a, on a huge project from our point of view where we took a number of children, I think it was 10, 10, 12 children from the north and 10, 12 children from the south. And they built a conference, which we called Our Brexit Two. So it was, a, it was a series of children who were concerned about the impact of Brexit on children themselves. We helped them for about six months. We came to either side of the border, depending where the, the meeting would be. And they built up um, a full day's conference. They designed it. They decided who was going to be invited. And they also decided how to run it. And they, they came up with six or seven themes. They were concerned about things like health, child protection, education, travel, um, Erasmus, those sorts of issues that were relevant to them. And they ran it in Newry, um, invited uh, Catherine McGuinness, uh, not Catherine, sorry, Maria McGuinness from the uh, MEP, a number of other MEPs and um, Secretary General of Children's Department of Children here and Department of Children in Northern Ireland came to the event. And Simon Coveney as Minister for Foreign Affairs would have sent a video link to it as well. They developed that and ran the whole event with 120 children from both sides of the border. And then the report that came out of that, groups of children brought it to Westminster, they brought it to Strasbourg, or, and they brought it to Brussels. And it was also presented in front of the uh, Anglo-Irish Joint Committee of, of Ministers here in Ireland as well. So that's one of the things we've done, and I would link in continuously with my uh, colleagues in, in Northern Ireland and across the British Isles as well, to see issues that are going on for them. And I would have learned an awful lot from recently in relation to Leaving Cert and standardization, which a lot of your students would understand. And we took some of the lessons from the British um, process and it seemed to, uh, and they, that was fed back to the Department of Education to do what they will with it. But again, that sort of close cooperation is vital from our point of view. And I think it'll be even more so now when Brexit does actually come to fruition. So that's some of the broad sweeps out of the way. But what about the process of children's rights being vindicated? What should a child who feels that they've been denied their rights actually do? Well, I mean, from our point of view, from our website is oco.ie. It's a very simple website to get to. But we, within that, we've created a, a special section for children called It's Your Rights. And in that, um, there's a section for children up to seven years of age, from seven to, to 12 and from 12 upwards. Um, and it explains children's rights in the simplest ways, and it also includes children's description of children's rights, and there's video and audio in a number of different languages. And for the younger people, we've also developed a, a new game called Rights Runner, which allows you to sort of play the game while at the same time answering a few questions about children's rights. Um, and it's been very, very successful from our point of view in getting people engaged in it. Other organisations like Children's Rights Alliance would have a helpline. Um, where children can get engaged with them there if they've got issues. And um, they also have a, a website as well, childrensrights.ie. And the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission would also have sections that people could look up as well if they've got any concerns. Um, so there's a range of things out there for people that can, can look at it as well and just get their, an understanding of what their rights are. One of the things that I've noticed that students tend to struggle with is the exact nature of the relationship between the UDHR, the UNCRC, the ECHR, the European Convention on Human Rights, and our own Bunracht Neheran. So I asked Niall if he could shed some light on the relationship between those different documents. I, listen, I can't blame them. I, it's complicated for me. I mean, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, and I'm a, I'm a psychology by background, so I had to learn a lot of this stuff myself. I suppose that the way I've done it is I've broken it down simply that there's a, there's a universal declaration, so that's global, and then there's a, a regional, which would be the European 
um, declaration, and then there's a local, which is the, the Irish constitution. And each one of them develops the rights for children. I suppose the universal one is, is um, you know, 1948 was the first the Declaration of Human Rights. And it's a, it was a coming together of the nations to say, these are the rights that we want all of our uh, citizens to be protected uh, under. And then the European one brought it more locally to, to clarify that this is to do with European, all European citizens. And then there's a definition of um, more specialized issues around uh, so the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child made it more specific for children's rights and within Ireland then the constitution is the key one because um, we haven't uh, ratified we've ratified the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child but we haven't put it into our legislation and therefore the constitution trumps it uh, when it comes to law so we have and that's why there was such a triumph in 2012 when we got the uh, children's referendum into our constitution to highlight the, the rights of children specifically within the constitution but from my point of view I suppose it's one of the things I keep pushing is to try and get the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child into our legislation and to be, have it um, incorporated within our laws. The children's rights are protected throughout the world in the same way just by being born all these, all these um, rights are given to you and the Irish nation has ratified that they're, they're periodically reviewed by the UN Committee so they have an international obligation to do right by children and to make progress in relation to children's rights. And every one of them is protected from that point of view. I would like to make that protection even stronger if it was incorporated in law, but that takes time. And I think there's 82 countries around the world have done that. And they still have problems. It's not the, it's not the answer to everything, but from our point of view, we keep fighting to make that happen. Untangle the terminology. For this week's Untangling the Terminology, I want to very briefly touch on two terms that you need to be familiar with for your study of children's and human rights, and which coincidentally are exactly the kinds of definitions that I could see being asked in a five-mark short question in the exam in June. These terms are the reciprocal ideas of rights holder and duty bearer. A rights holder, as the name suggests, is any party, person or groups of people, that have particular entitlements under a human rights agreement. In the context of the UNCRC, for example, it's the child or groups of children that have the entitlement to avail of their rights. The flip side of that, then, is the duty bearer. These are individuals or groups that have the duty or responsibility to fulfil obligations to the rights holder. Again, in the context of the UNCRC, the duty bearer would include the state, the government and its agencies, but also individuals like parents, legal guardians, caregivers and even teachers. As the European Commission explains it, these groups have, quote, duties and obligations under the Convention on the Rights of the Child, legally binding them to respect, protect and fulfil children's rights. Wary as I am of being too topical in these podcasts, I couldn't miss out on the opportunity to ask the Ombudsman about Articles 28 and 29 of the UNCRC, dealing with the child's right to education. So I asked whether he thought that the COVID-19 lockdowns had had any impact on the child's right to education in Ireland. It didn't create any inequalities, but it highlighted the ones that were there, you know, very, very starkly for people. When you... The whole essence of education is that it provides an opportunity to uh, come out of, of 
of social deprivation and to come out of inequality. We were inundated with, with concerns from people who, for children who were, school was the only safe place they had, first of all, physical safe place is where they might've got a bit of love and care and attention, uh, maybe food as well, just simple basics, protection. Um, then when it comes to education, we were inundated with people who, where the digital divide was very clear. Um, and oftentimes when I speak about that, people assume it's an urban rural, but it's not, you know, there's many parts of Dublin where they couldn't access um, either the technology, the, the hardware, or could have, couldn't afford the broadband or couldn't get access to a decent broadband in their house. Then they were compounded by the fact that some of the parents may have lost their jobs during the COVID experience, so they couldn't afford it from that point of view. Or alternatively, the parents continued to work and the older child had to stay at home and mind the younger children, so they couldn't take on their, their classes. Or they had to work from a, a phone, they had to use the broadband on the phone in order to try and do some classes. So the digital divide was huge. And then the other piece that was really highlighted was the special education needs. You know, um, the whole essence of school is to provide extra support to a child and to the parents to allow them to become educated in the way that they can and to maximize their potential. But when they were locked down at home, they regressed. There was no support given. The SNAs were supposed to go into the homes at some stage, it didn't happen. Children weren't brought back for after six months. So it really has impacted enormously on families and siblings and the young person who has special education needs throughout the whole summer. So it meant nobody had a break. Everybody was under pressure. Behavior could have been deteriorating and learning was certainly disappearing. Um, so yeah, I think it, COVID has exposed a lot of the flaws in our society. One of the more technical questions that I wanted to ask the Ombudsman relates to Learning Outcome 2.1, describing the process of decision-making at national level in relation to a policy that impacts upon young people. Here's how the Ombudsman described his role in that process. Okay, well, um, if we start at the top, if we assume the, the minister is, is a sort of the top of the tree, he's the, he's the government's representative for children. Um, it's his decision to make laws or, or policies relating to children in, in many areas. Um, the Ombudsman for Children's Office then is, is an independent overseer of the work done by the government in relation to children. So I will feed in to the minister if it's him, if it's around his, his remit about legislation and policies and where I see there's flaws, I'll, I'll investigate and I'll send those investigation recommendations to him um, or whatever relevant minister it is. And I would hope they would be used to, to influence uh, legislation. Similarly, if, if a bill or legislation is going into the Oireachtas, we will go into the Oireachtas committees and say, this is the stuff, this is the suggestions we're making on these bills and, this, uh, and these ideas. And it'll be built on the, on the evidence we have from our organization. We will also constantly link in with the NGOs, the sort of Children's Rights Alliance, Bernardo's, ISPCC, um, CARI, various different agencies like that to find out what's going on on the ground, to link in with maybe foster care, um, EPIC, people who are engaged with children in, in, the, in the vulnerable margins, traveler and Roma groups, and take on board what they say and feed that into our legislation submissions as well. Um, oftentimes we'd be saying the same things, but by the nature of our office, we may be heard a little better sometimes, um, a little clearer, we might get a better, uh, more likely to get a meeting perhaps. Um, so it's not, it's never wasted to, to hear the, the same thing twice um, when we go into ministers or, or civil servants to talk about legislation and policies. We'll also um, link in around uh, the UN Convention on the Rights, our Committee on the Rights of the Child, we're feeding back on how government is performing. So every five years that, that review is done. We just sent in a submission there last month and we expect the committee to be speaking with the government in the next month or two as well. 
So uh, those sort of feedbacks are very important too. So that's how, from our point of view, it's a, it's a really tiered um, process. But the government have been better. The last two governments that I've been involved with have been very clear in sending stuff to us and saying, listen, we're interested in what the, what the children's issues are here. Sometimes we will have to link in with them and say that you need to send this one over. They, there's, there's bills they may not think are related to children. Um, ironically, things like adoption are often considered as a parent's issue or an adult's issue. It's usually the, you hear adult children who are adopted talking about it. But uh, adoption is about the 18 or the under 18 year old now. Um, so we had to we we made feedback on those on those legislation. So I think hopefully that explains how it goes. There is an open opportunity for open consultation to the public. That's usually done through ind concerned individuals, but also NGOs, and then we will feed into it as well. And then the circle gets a little bit smaller as you go into the Oireachtas committee. They take they take hearings there as well and feeding into the minister on an ongoing basis. The one thing maybe students need to know is that it's a slow process. It really is. One of the things I've learned a lot of is patience and persistence. So you might want to change a law, but it could take five, six years to do it. But the key is to keep doing it and keep putting forward your case. And I think eventually it, it, they do tend to find its way into the, into the right bill. One area that my own students have struggled with is the difference between TUSLA, the Child and Family Agency, and the Office of the Ombudsman. I asked the Ombudsman to clarify it for us. Okay, well, I mean, I don't know if we're any similar similarities, uh, except that we're, you know, our, our main constituents are children. Essentially, TUSLA will um, provide all the social protection and uh, child protection uh, coverage for all children in the country. So if, if something goes wrong in a physical, sexual, emotional, or neglect in relation to children, they will be, they will be the people who come in. The social workers will, will guide the child. They will also look after foster care and adoption. Um, from a from a child's point of view as well, uh, if a child has to go to residential care, they will look after. It. If the child has to go to um, abroad for care, they will look after it as well. So that's their that's their role. And my job then is to oversee the performance of that role. And if parents or children have any issue or concerns about the, how a, how a social worker has dealt with them, and they've appealed or they've, they've complained to the parent, the social worker and it hasn't worked out, they can then come to us and we will challenge it. And we've challenged TUSLA on very many different areas in relation to child protection, in relation to how they handle um, aftercare for children who are leaving care, how they deal with um, adoption, how they deal with foster children, you know, a range of stuff, uh, children in, in uh, acute hospitals. So those sort of areas, we, we will, we will um, oversee them and we'll engage them on a regular basis. So similar to the minister, I'll try and meet the, the CEO of TUSLA maybe twice a year and, and feedback the concerns and the issues we would have to try and uh, let them know that these are things we need to change. Hopefully this will help students to understand that TUSLA is not a human rights organisation per se, a frequently misanswered question in some of the exams that I've graded over the last few years. It's time for Quote of the Day. I'll keep this week's Quote of the Day very short. It has been attributed to different people but most commonly to a woman called Stacia Tauscher, though it's very difficult to find out anything about her. Nonetheless, I think that the power of the sentiment stands on its own, even if there are arguments around its origin. Here it is. We worry about what a child will become tomorrow, yet we forget that he is someone today. 
I think that this quote sums up how I, and Ireland more generally, have come to think about children's rights over the past decade or so. Children's rights are there to ensure that we see children, whether in developing nations or at home here in Ireland, as someone today. And now that the children's rights referendum, more on that later, has passed, are more and more being treated as someone today. This might be a perspective to explore in class, or even in an exam essay, if you can find the space. This week, our Student Strike Back section is going to be a little bit different because I'm talking with a third-level student, Holly Farrell, who studied English and Human Development at the St. Pat's campus in DCU. I wanted Pulsock students to be able to see how the material they're studying on our course can serve as a springboard to more substantive ways of engaging with human and children's rights as they progress through their own educational journey. So I started off by asking Holly to outline how she became involved in children's rights. Um, I suppose so my journey with children's rights um, began in when I was in transition year, fifth year. And from a local kind of youth group, I was put forward to be, to be part of a group that was going to put together a report on how the Irish government are upholding children's rights in Ireland from the perspective of children. And I then brought that report to the UN in Geneva in 2015. So that was my beginnings with children's rights. Prior to that, I didn't really know anything about children's rights. Again, I personally thought it was, you know, children in Africa in our third world countries getting an education or access to food and water. I had never even considered how rights related to to my own life and, and that rights were something to be enjoyed as opposed to something that was just a basic human right. Um, so kind of since then, that shift in perspective for me has just been huge. Um, you know, even now that I'm no longer, we'll say, covered by the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child now that I'm over 18, um, but looking at education around those rights to, to create spaces where those rights can be enjoyed because it is so much more than basic human rights so the un convention is very aspirational and i think when you look at subjects like politics and society and things like that which which are bringing you know the un convention and children's rights into the classroom and allowing children to learn about these rights for themselves you know i think that education is absolutely huge and in time we will see hopefully a major shift in kind of the attitudes and awareness towards children's rights in Ireland, which is great because in 2022, we are approaching the 30th anniversary of the UN Convention in Ireland and also our next review by the UN. So that process that I was involved in when I was 16, 17, that's all beginning to start again. So, you know, I'm very hopeful that from the point that we were at when we were writing our report in 2015, that in that next review, we'll actually be able to see major progress and really positively look forward to that kind of 30th anniversary. I went on to ask Holly to give us an insight into the research she conducted. Well, like we briefly touched on kind of children's rights stuff in, in various modules. Um, and then obviously my thesis um, for human development was, you know, about how much teachers are taught about children's rights. And exploration of education students' understanding of children's educational rights, the right to education and the right to quality education under Articles 28 and 29 of the UN Convention on the Rights. So, you know, obviously I have been quite involved in, in the world of children's rights in various capacities since I was about kind of 
16, 17. And then when I was in college, you know, obviously I was studying alongside people who were who were becoming teachers. And I will be involved in events or, or speaking at different things. And then as I kind of got into my final year, I started to question, you know, these are people who next September will be out in the classroom, you know, shaping the minds of the young, supposedly creating rights-based learning environments for the children they're teaching. But they don't really seem to have much of an understanding or awareness of children's rights. So I wanted to conduct a bit of research um, with, you know, we'll say my peers who would have been final year um, primary teaching students to see you know what they had learned about children's rights in their course what they understood about children's rights and my specific references to article 28 and 29 of the un convention which would relate to education were because those articles you know kind of provide obligations for our education system and our teachers and if our teachers aren't aware of those obligations, you know, there's there's just a very grey area. You know, how can a teacher who doesn't know about children's rights, you know, teach a child about their rights or create an environment where they can, you know, feel empowered and hold their rights? So that was kind of the 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 kind of I suppose inspiration kind of behind the research. And then from doing that, you know, now obviously COVID did really affect it. So the research sample was much smaller than I'd hoped. But when I came back, it was kind of like a third of, of, of students, you know, felt that they, they didn't have kind of a good understanding of awareness. You know, while they were aware of children's rights as this kind of concept, it was very much the basic rights. And when you think of, of working with third world countries, so, you know, the right to food, the right to water, as opposed to will say how rights relate to a child in an Irish classroom you know the right it could be to to play or to to be to be involved in decision making that affects them and very few of them could actually pinpoint times in their four years of their undergraduate degree where they felt they had learned exclusively about children's rights and they felt they didn't actually have a very good understanding and also that people felt almost that everything within the realm of education you know is underpinned by children's rights but only if you're aware of them and understand what rights are and they felt they didn't have that foundational understanding so then when they did get into discussions and 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 look at things you know they they didn't have that base understanding so they weren't able to let's say fully enjoy the creation of a rights-based learning environment or or be able to to create resources to, to assist children in their learning about their rights. I was really intrigued by Holly's research but I wanted to know what her conclusions were so I asked her whether she had developed any specific recommendations from her investigation. Obviously the main one was was you know for people to, to really look at um, the content that is being delivered in undergraduate kind of initial teacher training courses. So there is a specialism module which is offered on kind of children's rights and, and, and development, but only 20 students from each year group will participate in that module. So, you know, maybe looking at making that a foundation module in the first year of the degree and then allowing people who, who want to kind of pursue children's rights further to take it on as a specialism and further it but you know to maybe look at ensuring that absolutely every education student whether it's early childhood primary secondary that in you know the initial stages of their degree that they are just given this foundation to work with 
and that everything else they do as they move on throughout their degree is built on that foundation that is rights-based. But I think it's also important to be realistic with students' expectations. Here's how Holly explained some of the challenges that she faced in completing her own research. So if you're struggling with your citizenship project now, be aware you're not alone in that difficulty. Um, now, my research actually was very directly impacted by COVID. So I was due to actually physically conduct my research, which was through surveys um, after St. Patrick's Day, that, that I think Thursday and Friday. So that was the week that universities closed. So then it was panic stations for a couple of days. And then I had to figure out, you know, the best way to, to recruit students and get the surveys out to them online because my hope had just been to go into to go into um, a, a lecture and um, I'd, I'd gotten permission from a lecturer just to go into their class you know ask you know anyone who who wants to participate in the survey to meet me afterwards and do it um, so recruitment was tough um, in trying to to follow kind of you know ethics and things like that which obviously is a much bigger thing at third level than I assume it will be for, for secondary school students. Um, so having to, 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 you know, review my ethical approval and things like that, because, because my, my methods had changed, that was quite tough. But um, I have to say, I really enjoyed conducting, conducting the research and, and I really spent a lot of time developing my, my survey. So the questionnaire, um, you know, I started the questionnaire, I said I might do maybe six or seven questions. I think it ended up being eight. So I made eight bullet points and looked at, you know, the themes of the research that I was hoping to conduct. So I kind of looked at it like, what are eight things that I would like to know that fit into my project as a whole? So then I had kind of eight ideas. And then from those ideas, I started to kind of tease out questions. You know, what question can I ask that might give me an answer that relates to this issue that, that, that I'm hoping to, to get some information on? And then I would have had my first draft of my questions. And then from there, um, I had to kind of look at to see if my questions were in any way leading, if they were, you know, presenting any bias and things like that, but, you know, to really hone them in. But definitely the easiest thing um, in, in conducting that research, and I suppose actually probably the most important thing was, was just starting with the themes and the information I was hoping to gather, and then over time pulling the questions out of that. Holly has given us some great insights into children's rights from the bottom up. Now let's pivot and look from the top down. I was very lucky to grab a few minutes with Minister Roderick O'Gorman, who's the Minister for Children and many other things. I asked him to explain exactly what his responsibilities were with regard to children and children's rights and in running the Department of Children. See if you can jot down in your listening along guide four areas that he specifically identifies and asking both your and the Minister's pardon for the slight bobbles in sound quality that resulted because of Zoom. Okay, well, I suppose the, the, the ministry itself is changing at the moment because it's not going to be the Minister for Children and Youth Affairs anymore. It's going to be the Minister for Children, Equality, Disability, Integration and Youth. So it's getting a lot, a lot wider. Um, but the core role of Minister for Children and Youth Affairs deals with a number of areas. The first key role it, does, it deals with, I suppose, is, is child safety and welfare. And through that, the minister is primarily, uh, it, it, the, the department 
supports TUSWEL, which is the Child and Family Agency, which is the agency that deals with children in care. So TUSWEL has the day-to-day -day job of looking after children in care, whether it's children in residential homes, children who are being fostered, uh, and the minister provides the funding to TUSWEL to do this and also provides the policies within which TUSWEL operates. So that's a very significant role. Um, because uh, there are, you know, there's a significant there's about 7,000 children in, in care through various means. Primarily, about 91% of them are being fostered, uh, and then there's a small number in residential care as well. So, TUSLA supports uh, that and ensures that those children are being uh, well looked after and, where possible, maintaining a, a, a relationship with their existing natural family. And my department supports all of that. The second big piece of my department's work is in the area of what we call early learning and care. And this is childcare, but we don't call it childcare anymore. We call it early learning as well, because there's an education element to uh, early years as well. So we would support a number of schemes, the uh, Early Childhood Care and Education Scheme, ETSA, which pretty much every parent with a, a two or three-year-old would avail of at this stage. And we're also uh, rolling out a, a bigger scheme called the, the National Child Care Scheme. And this is to provide most parents with some sort of subsidy towards their child care uh, or after school care, because we, we've stretched that out until the age of 12. Uh, so for children who go to school but whose parents maybe aren't available to pick them up at, at, at half three, there's, a, there's, there's, child, there's after school care for them. And it's important, I suppose, we're looking at very distinct things because the needs of a 12-month-old um, baby in child care is different from a three-year-old who's in early, early learning, is different from a 10-year-old uh, after school care. So there's all various different rules, different procedures, and um, it's a sector that's kind of developed very rapidly and, and continues to need more support. Uh, a lot of childcare costs are quite expensive and we need to bring that down. But we also need to make sure that the childcare professionals, the women, and it's almost entirely women who are working in this area, are uh, appropriately paid for the, the, the brilliant work that they do. Another area then that I look after is youth services. This is all kind of youth groups. So things like For Oiga, the Scouts, um, belong to uh, a wide range of youth organisations from the very big national ones to small local ones. And my department sets policies for them and also funds them uh, as well. Um, and then the, the final, well, I suppose the, the fourth area my department looks at are legacy issues. So these are issues where children were ill-treated in Ireland over the kind of the, the history of the state. So these would be places like the mother and baby homes that many, many people would have, would have heard about. Um, my department is responsible for the investigation into those. Um, the burial at Shoom, where people, that, that awful situation where uh, babies and young children were, you can't even say buried, but when they died, they were put into a, a, a container in Shoom and, and, and that, that, that was their, their burial site. So the proposal is to excavate that reinter them respectfully in, in a proper burial site. And also then issues to do with adoption and tracing, because I think our history, as we learn more about our history, we're seeing that a lot of uh, young children were adopted in a very unofficial way and a very haphazard way. And many of these children grown now want to maybe meet with their birth parents and their birth mother and form a relationship there. That's a very complex area that my department is responsible for um, making the laws fair. So, 
Minister O'Gorman obviously has what we'd call in politics a seat at the table. So I asked him to help us out with one of the elements of the subject spec in Learning Outcome 2.1 that wants us to better understand the process of decision-making at national level and how this relates to policies that impact young people. He talked to me first about some of the legal impacts of the 2012 Children's Rights Referendum and then about the process of policy formulation. Yeah, I, I think the... Um... The, 2000, the, 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 the children's rights referendum was very significant in recognising the importance of the voice of the child, both in legal cases that involved them, and in that situation we have this, uh, this court officer called the guardian ad litem, which is a Latin term, but basically it's somebody there to speak to in the court sitting uh, when, when there's a situation where a, a, a court order about child uh, child um, custody or anything like that is made, this person basically speaks to the judge on the child's behalf to make sure the child's own interest, not their parents' interest, but their interest is reflected in the case. That's one element, I suppose, in, in a legal case. But in the context of policy making, my department would have a number of um, youth forums where, which it would consult with in the context of policy making. So when it comes to policies about youth services, for example, every policy would at least be run through our youth services group at, and, and discussed there at, at, at that stage and, and their, their input would be, uh, would, would be sought. Uh, similarly, the, um, for example, we two, three years ago we brought in the, the country's first national LGBTI plus youth strategy and again there was a, a, a youth forum who spent a lot of time actually working on that and they, they wrote most of it actually our own civil servants here in the department would have done something subsequently, but nearly all of it was written by the actual um, the, 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 um, young people who were on that forum. So yeah, we, we really value the input of young, uh, of young people. I think when it comes to children, uh, I suppose young children, obviously they're less equipped maybe to be able to contribute to issues like childcare. But I think in that situation, we have a lot of real experts in early childhood education and we rely on them to make sure that, because obviously childcare is, is a um, childcare and, and early years education, it is a commercial uh, venture and business for a lot of people at the moment, and, and that's completely legitimate, but it is actually really important that the best interest of the child is represented in all the decisions. So that's why on our early years forum, we've uh, the Children's Rights Alliance, which is a, an NGO, which my department actually funds, which is focused on getting the best um, results for children. And we have other early year specialists as well, people who know really good, well about children's welfare. The Minister wanted to highlight the role of the Children's Ombudsman, but we're pretty up to speed with that at this stage. But let's tidy up the last few elements in that area by returning to Niall Muldoon. Lots of progress has been made in the last number of years, but it would just be wrong to suggest that all of the issues around children's welfare and children's rights have been adequately dealt with. So I finished up by asking Niall about some of the areas where he hasn't been as successful as he might have hoped to be, and about future plans for the Office of the Children's Ombudsman. Here's how he responded to that tough question. Yeah. I mean, listen, it's, it's the nature of this job. There's 1.2 million children, you know, I'm not going to get to everything. I have a six-year term. I spent the first year of the term sort of learning how, did, how things were working, what, would, what was happening, where, where I wanted to put my focus. Um, and then the second year, I created a three-year strategic plan. And the, the focus of, was on three sets of children, children with um, 
disabilities, children who were homeless, and children with mental health issues. Um, we focused on them for three years and really tried to make a difference. We did consultation with children in mental health we, who lived in, in adolescent uh, mental health units. We, we had, uh, set up a consultation with children who were homeless. Um, did a lot of work with children with disabilities as well. Did a lot of work around it. Then we came to the end of that three-year term in, uh, and we found when we got there that we couldn't let go of those issues. Homelessness had grown. Mental health hadn't been sorted out. And disability was still an issue that wasn't really where we wanted. So we kept those three and we added another two. Um, traveler and Roma children and children direct revision. So essentially it is an ongoing thing. We've had successes in those areas but I think from my point of view it's important that I keep a, a lens and a focus on them because I think that keeps the ministers thinking about what they need to do in case they're challenged by us um, and we keep going at it. So as regards things that haven't worked out that's that's certainly one of the things that for me things like mental health I mean the fact that we still have children going into adult psychiatric wards is a failure of society. The fact that we have children living in direct provision in this day and age is a failure of society. The fact that we have 3,000 children still in homelessness, 8,500 people. In January of this year, the rental market was, was more expensive here in Dublin than it was in Los Angeles. You know, that's a societal, that's a policy driven by the government. You know, we could we can redirect things. We can we can make different decisions that will make things easier for our more vulnerable children. Um, so those are things we're going to keep pushing for the next couple of years as well. We're closing in on the end of the episode now, but before I sign off, there's a few little points that I'd like to make about the topic of children's rights that might sum up some of the material we've covered today. Firstly. I think it's really worth noting that when it comes to children's rights in particular, we have to acknowledge that we are all duty bearers. Many of you are either already 18 or will be hitting that age soon. You need to take that responsibility in this regard seriously in the future, whether you're officially a mandated person or not. Secondly, I hope that you can recognise in the way that this episode is put together that the successful upholding of children's rights requires us to work collaboratively. It's not enough for us to say, oh, that's the problem of the ombudsman or of the Minister for Children or of people who get involved in activism in the human rights field like all of our participants today have been. It's for all of us to support those groups and work together, quote, in the best interest of the child and for us to support that work wherever we can. Finally, I'd suggest to you that in terms of your exam that you see children's rights as human rights. They're inexorably permanently linked through the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, the UNCRC, which itself is a legally binding international agreement, setting out the civil, political, economic, social and cultural rights of every child, regardless of their race, religion or abilities. It was initially passed by the UN in November 1989 and ratified by Ireland in 1992, but the world's very first declaration on children's rights was written by Save the Children founder Egeltine Jeb in 1923, almost a hundred years ago. Look, both nationally and globally, we still have a long way to go in promoting and guaranteeing children's rights. But it's worth remembering that in many ways, children's rights and human rights more generally are a journey, not a destination. It's time for you to start your children's rights journey now too. And with all these new perspectives and new information, it's worth remembering, as I always say, that you're not apart from society, you're a part of society. 
See you next time.